to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of Beyond Order by Jordan Peterson, 12 More Rules for Life, and this is part two of our two-part series. So, we did our part one. You don't have to listen to part one to listen to part two. They're totally separate. Uh, They're 12 rules for life or the 12 more rules for life after a follow-up to his smash hit. Uh, And these rules are totally different to the first lot, but they're phenomenal rules nonetheless. Absolutely. So, the first book of Peterson, 12 rules for life, that was all about being an antidote to chaos, not wanting chaos in your life. This book, it takes the other side of the yin-yang symbol and says beyond order. So, it's actually moving from order into chaos. And hopefully between the 24 rules, you find a nice balance between the two. Exactly. So, for this episode, we're going to talk about three rules. They're largely to do with interpersonal and relationships and your relationship with institutions, I guess. And so, this is, we're going to cover rule three, do not hide unwanted things in the fog. Rule 10, plan and work diligently to maintain the romance in your relationship. And rule number one, do not carelessly denigrate social institutions or creative achievement. Sometimes little things just build up in an interpersonal relationship and they just seem so minor that there's no point even bringing it up. But over time, these things add up and using the metaphor of the straw that broke the camel's back, sooner or later, it could get to that point where it just totally sucks because you've let so many of these things pile up for so long. Especially the things that happen every day. Peterson often talks about the the small things that happen every day are actually much more important than the big things that happen once every so often. And so, if there's something small happening every day, you might not think it's a big issue, but it just builds up, builds up another piece of straw, another piece of straw until eventually you may crack. Yep. And those things that build up a lot of the time, they're hanging in the murky areas. What is the fog? So, this is rule number three. Do not hide unwanted things in the fog. So, Jordan Peterson uh, in his work as a clinical psychologist, he had a client. Uh, She was a well-respected professional. She was a very kind and very caring person, but she was also very unhappy. And this actually stemmed from she had anxiety about a career transition, but really deep down, uh, Peterson doing the, the psychology stuff that he does worked out, well, it was actually boiling down to her marriage and the fact that she wasn't comfortable in her own home. She did not feel like there was anything in her home that was actually hers. It was just her and her husband. They didn't have kids, but she felt like every time she walked home, she was walking to his house, not their house. Now, the husband here, he was a huge enthusiast of like 1960s and 1970s pop art. He absolutely loved it this much. He spent all his spare time just looking for art galleries with these sort of things. And over the time, he gathered so much of it, it just absolutely filled the house. So, it was full of these decorative objects chosen by him. And her style, on the other hand, was very different to his. She was much more of a minimalist Steve Jobs style where she just wanted nothing in the house whatsoever. But at the same time, she didn't really know what she wanted. So, she wasn't in a strong position. So, on one hand, you've got him. He's very strong. I love this specific style of art. This is what I want. She didn't really know what she wants. She just knew that she didn't want that. But at the same time, she was just like, oh, you know, one more painting. What's it going to matter? It's not a big deal. I'm happy for him to go along and, you know, I'll sit in the car while he goes and buys this pop art. At the end of the day, it's a trivial thing. I'm not going to fight about it. Absolutely. Well, you can imagine every weekend, he just rocks it up. Hey, don't know. Let's call her uh, Susie. It's always, of course, it's, it's always, always Susie. Susie. Hey, Susie, I just got some more art from the gallery. It's like, you know, Dolly Parton ripping the guitar out and singing the, the songs that she sings, whatever they might be. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, a little thing like that on the wall, it's not a big deal, but over time, they build up and build up and build up and to the point where she is here where she feels like a stranger in her own home. 
But of course, she never went to war. She never had a fit of anger. She never exploded into a rage. Um, and for decades of her marriage, she never had this any outburst and she never directly or conclusively confronted the fact that she hated her own home and that she felt actually like a, almost a subordinate to her husband's taste. Instead, she just let him have his way and repeatedly, increment by increment, at all these little tiny trivialities, one thing here or there doesn't really matter, but in, uh, in some, it turned into this massive problem. Yeah, so there were hundreds of these little decisions over time, Arch just being one of them. And each of these were a weapon of some unspoken and destructive decades-long war. Unsurprisingly, eventually, the couple did split up. They probably just hated their time together for a long time leading up to that point. Yeah. In the divorce, who do you reckon kept all the art? I'd say say you got to keep it all, hopefully, yeah. She wouldn't want half of that. (laughs) She might have gone to sell it or something. Sometimes letting it build up, build up, build up is the default mode of things rather than actually just going to war with someone. After reading 33 Strategies of War, which we'll be doing at some stage, uh, I realized I had my own personal drama, a bit like this lady uh, doing her own art. And through that book, I became conscious and became a a willful warrior as opposed to just a little peasant on the sidelines. And I was with a colleague that over time is much more experienced. I can speak about it now because I've actually left there and gone to a new job quite recently. But I say over the period of six months, things stacked up where he just kept throwing work on me as if he was my boss. If you look at the org chart, we're horizontal. He's much older, <laughs> but he's definitely not my boss. So, over time with that situation, I obviously didn't like it and he was making me do some dumb shit and I didn't really want to do any of the work he was throwing on me. So, one day, you know, I went to war, pulled everything out of the fog. As we'll cover in 33 Strategies of War, I occupied the moral high ground and uh, appealed to teamwork in front of the whole team in a meeting. It was very awkward. But immediately after that situation, things were much, much better than they'd ever been and all the things were taken out of the fog. So, what is this fog? This fog is this uh, murky mist that really shrouds everything and the, the fog is a sense of uncertainty and unknowing, I guess. The fog hides your refusal to actually admit your feelings, admit what you want, admit what you don't want and instead you just let things slide and just chuck it all into the fog. Yeah, you've got your reasons for maintaining your ignorance. You might deliberately going that way. You might be afraid that if you actually specify exactly what you want, you'll discover what constitutes failure. Yeah, the problem is that if you make clear what you want and commit yourself to pursuing what you want, you might fail. Mm. But of course, on the other side, if you don't make clear what you want, you'll definitely fail. So, of course, if you've got a choice between definitely fail and probably fail, it's better to, to pick that target and aim for it. Throw back to part one of this episode that uh, it was all about picking a target and aiming for it because, of course, if you refuse to see a target, you're never going to hit it. If you refuse to take aim at a target, you're never going to hit it. And even worse than not ever hitting a target is actually not even firing that arrow because when you shoot off something, you at least will learn from your uh, missing along the way. If you shoot and miss, at least you can recalibrate and aim slightly better next time. But if you never pull that, uh, I was going to say trigger, but if you never pull that string back of the bow and shoot that arrow off, then you're never even going to learn what you're doing wrong. I like that metaphor. I think we start using that. We always use this swing baseball analogy. (laughs) I think we can go 50-50 with this arrow one because it's also... It communicates a similar thing. So, what's the alternative to hanging out in the cold fog? First thing you can do is just admit to your feelings. Now, this is really hard. It's not easy. If you just note your own petty anger about something that's small or the pain you've got due to your loneliness or anxiety about something in the future, it might seem all trivial, 
but the admission of feelings is the revelation of ignorance, insufficiency, and vulnerability, mm. and the first step to actually solving the problem. Yeah, I know Peterson talked about his father-in-law, where his his mother-in-law would always cook him um, a soup and a sandwich. And she'd bring out this sandwich on these tiny little side plates. And apparently after 20 years, he never said anything. And just one day, he just exploded saying, why the hell are we using these little tiny piece of shit plates? Give me a real size plate instead yeah. of putting it on this tiny little plate. So, of course, obviously, if you had to say at the very start, you know, 20 years earlier, you know, how come we're using these tiny plates? Can we just use the big plates? That would have saved him 20 years of like bottling oh. up inside how annoyed he was. It's, yeah, it's very funny. I've got a mate, you know, uh, Turner, who's the artist for our, our book cover design. Yeah the shit they never taught you. So, one of the best designers in Australia, I'd say. But anyway, very talented. But in high school, he got he was always popular and all that, but he always got bullied and he always acted like he really didn't care at all. He just let it go off his off his shoulder. Then one day on the bus, like one mate just, just said something rude to him about his, you know, about his appearance or something like that. And then rather than just letting it go, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. Oh, yes. Got up out of his seat and just punched him in the face hard <laughs> and broke his nose. <laughs> and that was a mate of ours. Like, geez. And he sat back down, like just shaking his head. And yeah. uh, it is amusing when it happens to someone else. <laughs> when it happens to someone else. If you think that's sort of like, that's the, I don't know how, how we can explode this metaphor even further, but you know, so you've got this, this fog, the fog's brewing up, the fog's brewing up, and then eventually something mysterious pops out of the fog, like a, a punch to the face instead it'd be bloody tough to do when you're getting bullied i can't i wouldn't if i was in that situation i'd struggle to do it but you know if he stood up for himself earlier in a smaller way maybe it would have stopped Man, i whipped out a one in the wrong way recently where uh allison bought some new uh cushions mm. and i thought they were absolutely disgusting it was like this oh it looked like they were from an op shop apparently they cost a lot of money they looked like they just had this old fluff on them that they probably they looked like they were 60 years old and i just said look these are ridiculous i do not want these on my bed similar to the pop art person back in the day where i've got no interest in interior design so i just go along with whatever she says but this is one where i thought you had nah, to fight i gotta have the i gotta put my foot down i don't want this fluffy old dirty brown thing sitting oh, around on my mate, bed one day it's cushions next time she's bringing back this old fluffy old couch <laughs> yeah, exactly. and you just let it go and then you just in a house that you don't want to be in. Yeah, that's it. There was a bit of uncomfortability because she absolutely loved those cushions, but it was worth having the fight over something small rather than um, you know, rather than thirty years later we say, okay, you keep all these fucking cushions, I'm getting out of here. Mm. So we're talking about pretty you know trivial things for some people. There's obviously huge bangers that are just lurking in the fog that you're just too afraid that if it's say you're packed in a closet. If you open the door, it's going to swing open and you think you get smacked over the head by these huge... All this shit's going to burst all out. And burst. It might be true. There might be nothing in the closet. It might be packed with shit that will take you out. But the longer you don't confront it, the more likely it is going to take you out and crush you under excess baggage. But in any case, you're better off doing it earlier than later. Yeah, in a met- metaphorical sense, of course, that excess baggage from the physical cupboard coming out and squashing you, but also the metaphorical baggage popping out of the metaphorical cupboard to, to smack you up along the way if you don't address it earlier. So we need to have some careful searching, some careful attention, and by actually admitting our feelings and picking what we want, we might tip the balance a bit more towards opportunity, a bit more away from obstacle. We're going to move more towards what we actually want, and we're going to clear up some of that fog. So rule number three, do not hide unwanted things in the fog. Some couples, some marriages, some relationships, they might say, we're not going on any damn dates. We've dated before we got married when it was appropriate, but now all we do is fight. 
So, of course, the theory that these couples are putting forward is that they're never going to accompany each other on another date for their entire married life and instead for the next six decades or so, they're just going to give up. But instead, why not you know, take the risk, uh, use a bit of time, take each other somewhere nice, maybe put, put your arm around one another and try and enjoy the time together. Yeah, at the very start, the other person was kind of mysterious as you're getting to know them. Then over time, you feel like you get to know them and like, why go on a, a, a date? So, the question is like, how do you find mystery in the other person over the long run? Now, that's a pretty hard, pretty hard question, hard thing to keep. But if you can muster up the will and the romantic imagination and the playfulness, you can do that. And let's say you live for X amount of time doing some Tim Urban kind of maths, you might have the opportunity to have 3,000 more occasions with your partner, maintain that mystery and also that romantic play. Yeah, over those next you know, 3,000 potential dates that you could have, it's going to take a fair bit of effort and a bit of planning to get through that. So, rule number 10 is plan and work diligently to maintain the romance in your relationship. You might think that you can't have fun on dates anymore with your partner. You might think there's too much bickering or you can't switch off from thinking about work. You can't relax and enjoy each other's company. But Peterson says, well, of course you can't because you don't have any skill in dating. Maybe you used to be a romantic. Maybe you never were a romantic. Maybe back in the day you were, but those those days are long behind you and you're not really good at dating anymore because dating is actually a skill. Uh, it's something you need to learn, something you need to practice. It's not just some gift bestowed upon you by the god Cupid. The god Cupid, absolutely. Is he a god? <laughs> I don't know. It's Cupid. You know, a little, It's a little a child, thing. isn't it, with wings? I think it's it. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's, it's not a god. It's lower in the hierarchy Fairy. up in the heavens, mate, I yeah. think. Than, than halfway, halfway between human and god. Yeah, we'll go with that. But if you're committed for the long run and every date you go on, you might get 3% better. And we're talking about dating your actual partner, not going on with yeah. um, new dates with other people. But as you prove in this area, you're putting conscious effort into making the relationship better. With care, you might rediscover the person you have chosen and find a bit more mystery within them. And this is the spirit that first brought you together. You won't put them in this convenient box. You might rekindle this initial glimpse that got you attracted in the first place and that that initial spark you have at the very start. So, you need a relationship-wide strategy in place to maintain romance with your partner across the years. Now, having a strategy, having a plan, it sounds all very dry, it sounds very rigid. A lot of partners would, wouldn't like it yeah. over the glass of red. Let's have strategy. Let's, let's make it's like a, a strategy, business meeting yeah. almost. It sounds very unromantic as opposed to, you know, let's just go with the flow, have a bit of spontaneity. But uh, as Peterson says, and it's, you know, popped up at, in pretty much every rule, is that the chance that you'll get what you want if you fail to aim for it is vanishingly small. So, you need that bit of intentionality, one of my favorite words of, of 2020. You need intentionality to put a plan in place. And regardless of what your strategy is going to be, the success depends on one thing. And again, this is something more dry and you think could be left for the business tables and this is to negotiate. And to negotiate, you and the person you are negotiating with both need to know what you both want and need. And secondly, you need to be willing and courageous to discuss it forthrightly. Yeah, exactly. You need to... and. It- Making a strategy, it's not a one thing where one person says, hey, here's our strategy. Obviously, that's a shock and negotiation. You need both parties to be fully bought in and both parties to have their voices heard because really marriage, uh, it's a vow. There's a reason to have it. You know, when you announce publicly, basically you're saying, I'm not going to leave you in sickness or in health, in poverty or in wealth, and you're not going to leave me. It's actually a good, uh, you know, a bit of a threat almost 
but it's also a promise just to say, look, no matter what, we're not going to get rid of each other. Let's stick together for the long haul. And of course, if you're going to stick together for the long haul, you probably need a bit of a strategy, a bit of negotiation, so it's worth it. Yeah, if you're not married and you don't have that commitment and things go to shit, you've always got that little trap door just to get Mm. out and avoid the suffering at all costs. But when you make that commitment, you have to just power through. And if you listen to the previous episode, you know, when you go through that suffering, you might end up more like a diamond than just a weak lump mm. of coal. Yeah, nice. And again, we'll throw back to paradox, paradox of choice saying don't take the option. If you've always got the option in the back of the mind, that at some point I can swap this person for someone else, it's just like a, a cognitive load of, and you're probably going to not enjoy your time as much. Whereas if you just say the door's shut, we're doing this, the next 50, 60, 70 years we're locked in, then you're actually going to enjoy that relationship a lot more. Well, paradox of choice, that spoke about 21 jams versus six jams and they made Mm. the comparison there when we're talking about the dating scene there's seven billion people in the world Mm. so if you do the math you're not just talking about (laughs) one piece of jam you're talking about probably hundreds of millions out there who could have made a good partner for you if you're Mm. really honest about it and you don't really have the time in your life to go and try them all out and find the perfect one and the probability that you found the optimal person is Pretty much zero. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, are you going to whip that spiel out when you do your speech <laughs> at your wedding and the, just saying, look, the probability that you're the one is zero, but I'm willing to negotiate. Are you going to whip that out? <laughs> Yeah, How's I don't that going to fall? go down too well. I think, uh, mate, it's been the, the uh, something I've been thinking about. It's probably the most unromantic thing you could ever oh. say, but I think it's true that like there's almost no chance that there's this magical one. And if there was, there's almost no chance that you found the magical one. You're probably full of shit. Yeah, exactly. Or but, you're full of shit. <laughs> but at the same time, if you uh, if you just choose actually, actually, this person's going to be the one. So Peterson says it's not about finding the one; it's more about making the one. Mm, there's a big difference there. And if you don't know that, you're in real trouble because you're always going to be peeking at that trap door rather mm. than just making it with the person you're with currently. So, if the person you're with, if you choose uh, that they're the one, then the first level of achievement you can get through your marriage is that you can, you know, you strive for this and you get a, a successful, a solid marriage um, and you enjoy each other's company. That's a good achievement. And another achievement you can get through this means is having kids. And if you've got a solid marriage with kids, it's going to work out for them as well. Yeah, Peterson says that uh, uh, neither of us know ourselves, but uh, we'll take his word for it that you can get a lot of joy from having kids and then from having grandkids as well. You meet a lot of people, uh, he says, usually unwise people that say categorically and pridefully, I do not want children. He says, look, there's plenty of 17, 18, 19 year olds out there who say that, but of course, you know, whatever, they don't know any better. They might mature at some point. He mm. says there's often, you know, 27, 28, 29 year olds that say that. But a lot of them, he says, are probably single and it's a bit of sour grapes saying, oh, I don't want kids. That's also just because they're not in a long-term relationship so they probably can't have any. He also says there's even like your 47, 48, 49-year-olds who say that they don't want kids. He says often there might be a few telling the truth but many of them are just closing the barn door after the cattle have bolted. Mate, you used to say this. Uh, I remember back in the early days of the party, you used to say you don't want kids. That was when you were 25 oh, you or 26. Like my, mom's, uh, my mom's boyfriend and I used to whip that out. I actually did say that. And you I was did say that a lot, very yeah. confident that I'd never be the one having kids. But um, <laughs> So, where are you at? I've changed my mind on that one. Oh, good, I think yeah, one you. day I will. Um, <laughs> I think it's. I do relate to what Peterson's saying here because in our culture, we really do live as if we're going to die at the age of 30. Mm. You know, it's... Probably, I was probably living in Neverland a little bit thinking, oh, why well, have kids? It's the most unquestioned truth that we all do just blindly mm. and look how much all parents are suffering with dealing with bloody kids and nappies and being responsible for other people. 
you know, you're better off just having no responsibility so you can go out, travel the world, <laughs> run businesses, do all that kind of stuff. Anyway, that's what was going through my head. But I think Peterson knocks it out of me here. You've matured. He says that you're normally young and unwise when you say that. So that's good, mate. You've become less young and less unwise. So that's a good thing. But that was a common trap that you fell into. Another common trap we've both fallen into. He says cohabitation. That's a big mistake. He says, of course, nobody wants to end up with a psychopath, a drunk, a liar, a criminal, a sadist, or some combination of all of those. It's a very reasonable fear that you're going to end up with someone who might seem great on the surface, but after a couple of years, the cracks start to appear. So he says a, a rational, reasonable idea is to say, oh, well, let's test it out. How about we, before we get married, let's live together? It feels comfortable in theory, but what you're really saying is, oh, you're going to do for now, and I presume you feel the same about me, but we both reserve the right to swap each other out for a better option at any point in time. <laughs> yeah, it might sound harsh like that, but Peterson says if you look at the stats, uh, the divorce rate is actually very high, but if you look at the stats of people who break up, who are living together but aren't married, it's actually a lot higher than the divorce rate. So he says that whilst it sounds like a, a reasonable strategy to test someone out before you get married, he says it's actually a bad strategy because you actually end up worse off, you break up more likely, even mm -hmm. if you do get married, the divorce rate among people who live together first is higher than those that didn't. The decision to break up and not to commit is probably something we don't examine the downside of very often either. Let's say it takes two to three years to find someone who you think is pretty cool. It takes another two to three years to find out who they are. That's about a five-year exploration, find someone and exploring if they're right. How many of those bullets have you got? You probably don't have many. So, so many five-year stretches. Nah, well, I used to be working with someone, she's a, a female, and she's saying she had someone pretty good in her late 20s, but she wanted to see who, what else is out there, and that's exactly what she said. Um, when I was speaking to her, she was about 37, pretty good-looking chick, beautiful soul, good person, but it was just really regretting that decision, and then she was single and couldn't find anyone. So it all boils down to the fact that uh, it's better to make someone the one, as you say, maybe the person with, that she was with, they were probably a solid, you know, 9 out of 10, 9.5 out of 10. Maybe she was looking for that 10 out of 10 and as yet hasn't thrown it. If you do pick this person, um, there's three fundamental states of social being that you can be in in any social relationships and especially in a romantic relationship. You can be in tyranny, which is saying you do what I want. You can be in slavery, which is saying I'll do what you want. Or you can be in negotiation, which of, which of course is the only good place to be in. If you don't negotiate, you're going to have your hands around each other's neck for 60 years potentially. <laughs> Hopefully metaphorically. Hopefully metaphorically. Yeah. And you don't want that. And there's a lot of things to negotiate in the domestic economy. If there is no template for either what you should be doing or your partner when you live together, obviously over the last few decades, gender roles have moved away like they used to, which obviously has got huge benefits in the emancipation of women, particularly in the workforce. But that means the importance of negotiation has increased more than ever and actually asking the questions about who's, who's responsible for what in your partnership. As we said, you need a strategy uh, for your relationship and it's better to lay those foundations early rather than get to the point where it's, there's tension and there's a fight. You need to have that negotiation early. So whose career is going to take priority when and why? Who will, how will the children be educated? How will they be disciplined by who? Who's going to do the cleaning? Who's going to set the table? Who's going to take out the garbage? How, how do we run our bank accounts? Who's going to manage it? Who's going to set it up? Who pays for what? Who has the responsibility for sorting out the taxes? There's all these tiny little things. That, well, they're big things really, but there's probably like 100, 200, 300 of these to actually run a household 
properly and it can be as complex as running a business. You know, having this tight uh, family unit that's got a nice strategy that's working together optimally is it's sort of tough to maintain but it's better to put those foundations in place early. So we need to negotiate but we also need to have enough communication with your partner. Now, Peterson says, just as a quick rule of thumb here, about 90 minutes a week, that's probably about right, just to deal with purely the practical and personal matters. Yeah. Again, it sounds very like corporate, very work-like. Let's book in three 30-minute like sessions your, your, your in the calendar. Your WIT meetings, your WIT meetings <laughs> yeah, exactly. each week. But it, it sounds weird, but it is important, you know, just to talk about what's happening at work, you know, how are the kids going from your perspective, what do we need to do around the house? There's all these things because he says that there's sort of three stories in any relationship. There's your story, there's their story, and there's a joint story. If you have your 90 minutes a week, you can keep all those three things aligned. If you start to drift and miss a couple of those meetings and postpone and send a calendar invite and cancel one, you know, <laughs> then at some point he's going to say, look, those three stories are going to start to drift apart and you, your story is going to be very different to their story. Finally, if you do a lot of things right, you commit, you negotiate, you communicate, perhaps you can get to a good bit of romance, you know, a bit of Casanova stuff happening Ooh, a, f- yeah. a few times a week because romance is play and play doesn't take easily when any sorts of problems arise. If you're properly pissed off, you're not going to get it on. Yeah. If you get pissed off, maybe you can get it on after as your little make- <laughs> makeup stuff, but, it's not sustainable. but that's post-negotiation, I'd say. <laughs> he says uh, you need to find some kind of mutual agreement to, for the sexual side of your marriage. You know, It's probably not 15 times a day. It's probably not twice a year. Zero is obviously very bad. That's as cooked as it gets, but you need to be somewhere in between those two. Uh, again, maybe this takes a bit of romance about it, but he says aim for two times a week and book in, you know, is it Wednesday night and Monday night? Are we doing Tuesday, Saturday? What are we doing? Book in these two Back sessions. Back on the calendar. <laughs> Back on the calendar. Right? Again, very unromantic, but maybe if, you know, you practice it up and you've got them booked in, maybe it means you're not, you're not you know, making a move and getting rejected. Maybe if you just know, look, I'll leave you alone Wednesday through Friday, but if you give me a Tuesday and a Saturday, I'll be happy, you know, if, and then maybe you can start to dial up some more kinky stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's not actually specifically saying kinky stuff or calendars or anything he like did. that. He definitely said oh, calendar. He, he said book in. No, he said book in Monday, Wednesday or, you know, pick two days and oh, lock yeah. them in. <laughs> oh, there you go. Man, I did it. There was a, this bloke, there's truly no chance this bloke's listening, but I was talking to a bloke the other day 47-year-old bloke, he's got a 34-year-old missus and he was he opened up to me and he said, in the last three years, I've had four roots and Oof. he said he's had, he said July 2020 was an absolute phenomenal month. He had two in a month and he's had zero since then. So, oh, obviously, wow. they, these guys aren't negotiating. They don't have a relationship strategy. They've got nothing going on. You know, they're not doing any of these things that Peterson suggested. He needs to start to go back to the calendar, I reckon. Go back to the calendar. Might even just think about what her fantasies are, right? Just whip <laughs> on a tuxedo and and Peterson says that. So, maybe that's a few decades ago and Peterson's the prob- the time to work. Problem for this bloke, he was saying... She wants, uh, she wants a ring and a pram as in to have kids and he said, mm-hmm. all I want is a boat and a caravan. So, they're just, I think these, this couple's done. Yeah. Well, there's no negotiation. Maybe you should send them in this podcast episode. <laughs> so, rule number 10, plan and work diligently to maintain the romance in your relationship. The world is extremely complex as we all know and we need to reduce it somehow to decide how we're going to act within it. And then also you're playing with a whole bunch of other people who are trying to make the same kind of decision. So, there's a whole lot of complexity going on. So, how the hell do you do this? 
And the way you do it is by outsourcing a lot of the cognitive problems to the institutions that are within the world. We take these things for granted. They've been there for a long time. Other people built them up. And a lot of the time, they're there for reasons that we can't exist. But in one sense, by outsourcing to them, we're trusting them and acting in a way within the rules. So, rule number one is do not carelessly denigrate social institutions or creative achievement. Basically, there's a whole bunch of stuff that just needs to be done. Everyone needs food. Everyone needs water. And these institutions have popped up to make sure that the most people get the most satisfied in these basic areas of life. So, in consequence, there's going to be some people who are better at solving these problems than others. And these are the people that inevitably form into some kind of hierarchy. The people who are better at solving the world's biggest problems are the ones that move towards the top of the hierarchy. And the ones unable to, to deal with these problems start at the bottom of the hierarchy. In one sense, there's always going to be upside and downside to a lot of things. So institutions, they're great. But at the same time, you do have that Pareto distribution of resources where a whole bunch of it goes to just the people at the top and the people at the bottom of the hierarchies get a pretty bad deal. But it's this constant jockeying for resources, constant jockeying for position, this struggle for survival and reproduction, uh, this constant competition but also cooperation that keeps the hierarchy in place. Now, being at the bottom of the hierarchy sounds awful, but there's actually benefits to starting at the bottom. Uh, Peterson says that when you're at the bottom of the hierarchy, it really forces you develop, to develop both gratitude and humility. So gratitude in the sense that you... You're at the bottom of the hierarchy, so you're probably not the best at what you do. And because of that, there are people whose expertise is better than your own, and you should be pretty pleased about that. In one sense, I'm the bottom of the hierarchy for doctors, so <laughs> I should be grateful that there are other people who are better than me at that. Exactly. And humility, uh, it's better to presume ignorance and invite learning uh, than to assume sufficient knowledge and risk uh, blindness that comes with it. So being at the bottom, you realize that, man, there's a whole bunch of stuff you don't know. And that if you can stay humble and stay open and stay curious to learning, it's going to serve you better if you were to move up the hierarchy in future. In one sense, you have to go through this, the phase of being a foolish beginner before you can learn anything. Therefore, quite interestingly, throughout history, the fool has been seen as a really positive thing. So today when we call someone a fool, it's obviously a bad thing. But for them, it's not necessarily so bad. Yeah, even in the fortune tellers in their tarot card decks, there's a card which is the fool, which as it says is a positive card. It's a young, handsome man. His eyes are lifted. He's looking up at the top of the mountain that he's trying to journey up. The sun's shining brightly upon him, but he's also about to step off the edge of the cliff as well. So it's sort of like knowing that, look, there's a whole bunch of stuff that you know, but there's even far more stuff that you don't yet know. And there's different ways you can play this game of the fool. So... Jordan Peterson, obviously a lot of people recognize him now. He was out for dinner one night and then a supporter came up to him really excited and said, hey, look, you've helped me so much. I've stopped just whinging and complaining and criticizing about the stuff I was doing. You know, I work at a, at a restaurant. I was doing the dishes. It's a very low status job, but it's also very necessary to keep the business running. So instead, rather than complaining and whinging, he decided to be grateful and seek out what opportunities presented themselves right before him and he made up his mind to be more reliable, more diligent and just see what would happen if he worked as hard as he could and he was very surprised at the result because only after six months, he'd been promoted three times because this just wasn't one bar, it was a chain of bars and there's a lot more opportunities underneath his nose that he wasn't witnessing beforehand. Yeah, he started to realize that wherever you are, even if you're at the bottom, there's so much potential. Um, 
previously he was closed off. He was just saying, look, I'm, I'm trapped at the bottom here. This is so shit. I hate doing this. And of course, he's not going to move up. But by seeing actually there's a lot of potential here, there's a lot of opportunity, he was able to change his outlook. So in order to do a, a good job, he had to get along with the cooks who were notoriously uh, tough to get along with. He had to be polite and engaging with customers. He had to constantly pay attention. He had to be uh, proactive and look for things to help out other people and other team members. And as you said, it was, an, it was a national chain of restaurants. He was able to take a few steps up by coming to work every day, sort of excited, awake, ready to tackle the challenges. He was able to improve himself and then slowly move up this hierarchy. Now, we were just talking about the bottom of the hierarchy. Obviously, if you're a top dog within the hierarchy, that's not such a bad thing either. It is a very, very good thing to be an authority because people out there, they're very fragile and because of that, there is a lot of difficulty and suffering that is common in the society. So, being someone who can ameliorate that suffering is a very good thing. I mean, everyone needs food, water, sanitary facilities, place to take shelter and that's just for starters. It takes effort, initiative, and ability to be able to solve people's problems, just those those basic survival-level problems you said, but then as you move up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, there's other problems that come with that. So people who are able to solve problems for other people are going to become more valuable, and hence, they're going to start to be less of a fool and more of a top dog. Now, in a perfect society, the very best people at solving problems should rise to the top. That's when society is working at its best. It's not necessarily just a power game, that is. It's all about authority that accompanies ability. Yeah, there's two. Uh, Ambition can be seen as sometimes a negative thing. If someone's too ambitious, often they get tarnished with it. It's a bit of a backhanded compliment. But Peterson says it's important to differentiate between two types of ambition. One is ambition for power. That's people who are power hungry. They want to get that power to tyrannically rule over people. That's a bad kind of ambition. A good kind of ambition is the ambition to actually help others and improve and generally solve the problems to improve other people's lives. Mate, so I'm this gonna, is oh yeah. I'm going to drop a bit of a, a Peterson on the fly here. I was just oh, yeah. watching Lord of the Rings last night. Oh yeah, this might not actually get not Harry Potter. Metaphor. One of your favorites? No, Lord of the Rings. No, I don't like Potter. Mate. <laughs> um, but in it. When uh, Frodo Baggins, he's got the ring, the one ring to rule them all. He's the only one who's got the heart to actually take that ring and not be corrupted by its its power. Whereas all the other heroes within it, they know as soon as they get that ring, they'll be corrupted probably by the power and it will go to their heads and they'll do something different. So Frodo, the hero in this journey, he's someone who's able to take that right to Mordor and do it purely for the good of society. Now, you said that was on the fly. I'm, I'm almost 100% sure that was in the book. I swear to God, it wasn't. I swear to God. I, I think it was deep inside It was in your my brain. brain. It's not in the notes, but I'm 100% sure it was in the book. Well, I think I had this <laughs> willing in my brain. And I watched it yesterday. It was not in the book. Oh, mate, I'm claiming it. I'm claiming Claim it. it. <laughs> I wish I could give you more credit, but I definitely... I haven't seen Lord of the Rings, so the only place I would have heard that was in Peterson's book. Um, <laughs> Maybe I read it, then I was watching it, and then in my brain, I untangled it and claimed it. Yeah, that's it. That's what I think so. Well, let's let's jump to um, one of your other favorite movies, Harry Potter. We mentioned how much of a Harry Potter fan you were in the in part one of this episode. Uh, JK's done it again. She's back with some more deep, you know, little story about wizards and stuff that actually reveals a lot about uh, human nature. Well, if you think about it, there's this moral conundrum that in one sense, if you just simply just follow all the rules of institutions as they're laid out, that's not necessarily such a good thing because Mm. you can get tyrannical power and if it was just like that, there'll be no creative achievement 
say five centuries ago and things would just remain the same and there'll be no disruption whatsoever. But at the same time, you don't want just too much disruption where you're just tearing down every institution. Mm. So it's a very difficult question. Like how can you find the balance between reasonable conservatism and revitalizing creativity? Well, your mates, Harry, Ron and Hermione seem to have done this pretty well. They're generally, for most of the time, they're willing and able to follow the rules uh, and they'll go along with whatever needs to be done, going through Snape's classes and doing wizard shit. Um, and then <laughs> Mate, you've seen it a lot more than let out as well. <laughs> and then, uh, but at the same time, they also break the rules when they need to be broken. Like sometimes rules are in place for a reason, but sometimes rules are just old and outdated and sometimes they need to be broken. Tell us about Marauder's Map, something you know a lot about. Well, this is a really interesting technology for the young wizards because <laughs> it actually provides the bearers of the map with a very accurate representation of all the explored territory within the physical layout of Hogwarts, which is a very good thing. And the only way to activate the tool is by saying something like, I solemnly swear that I am up to no good. So by being someone who's up to no good and breaking the rules, you get the whole territory. And to deactivate it, you say, uh, mischief manage. So, you know, you're breaking the rules, but in a managed and somewhat of a deliberate kind of way. <laughs> Too good. Well, as you say, like you need to, uh, I think we said this at the start, like there's a lot of things that we already know uh, and that's sort of what our social institutions element of this rule is. That's uh, the hierarchies in place to make sure everybody's satisfied. But then there's also a lot of unknowns that we don't know about. And really the only way to do that is to break a few rules and be a little bit creative to step outside of the, the common bounds. Peterson says it's very hard to articulate exactly this balance, but he says it could be something like this. Follow rules except when doing so undermines the purpose of these very same rules. Mm. So if you know what the purpose of the rules are and the rules are stupid, (laughs) then you could probably break the rules. (laughs) That's it. So you need to firstly have a solid understanding of the rules. What are the rules? Why are they in place? What's sort of the purpose behind those rules? Uh, that's why he's saying you don't just undermine the social institutions. They're there for a reason. You shouldn't just go out there and start tearing them down because you think on the surface they don't seem right. You've got to have a solid understanding of them first. But then at the same time, once you do have an understanding of that, that's when you've got to start to break the rules because you've got to realize that every rule was once a creative act and in order to break rules and make new ones, it takes creative acts again. And every time, you know, it might seem like the wild person at first, but eventually, if, if you've done the right thing in the right way, people will realize, actually, this is a pretty good rule. Let's use this one now. The very world depends on this for its stability and dynamism with this dual ability to understanding and breaking the rules. So rule number one, <laughs> which I guess you can break after reading this, <laughs> is uh, do not carelessly denigrate social institutions or creative achievement. So that was uh, part two of Jordan Peterson's Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life. In this one, we talked about a lot of the interpersonal world, both the uh, personal relationships that you have with other people, but also the relationships that you have with the world and with institutions themselves. So we went through rule number three, do not hide unwanted things in the fog. Rule number 10, plan and work diligently to maintain the romance in your relationship. And rule number one, do not carelessly denigrate social institutions or creative achievement. If you haven't listened to part one, we covered all the the personal rules. And rule number four was notice that opportunity lurks where responsibility has been advocated. So a bit of a career development context. Rule seven, work as hard as you possibly can on at least one thing and just see what happens. 
And rule two, imagine who you could be and then single-mindedly aim at it. 